Well, I believe when speaking with the prince, one waits for the prince to choose the topic. Waiting for me to commence a conversation, one can wait rather a long way. The King's Speech, Tom Hooper's multi-Oscar winning picture from 2010, is essentially about two men talking. Or, more accurately, it is about one man desperately trying to talk, while the other tries to help him overcome his stammer. What compounds the difficulty is that the man with the stammer is the King of England, George VI, and as the King of England, he must have the speech of a king. It is one thing for an average citizen to have a speech impediment, but it is quite another when you are the figurative head of a country and you can't even control your own tongue. The King is portrayed by Colin Firth in an award-laden performance, and while the script written by David Seidler was inspired by Seidler's experiences of overcoming his own stammer, it was not the first time Firth had played a character with such an affliction. In 1987, he appeared in Pat O'Connor's adaptation of J.L. Carr's novel A Month in the Country, where he played Birkin, a veteran of World War I, traumatised by his time in the trenches. Then in 1999, on the London stage, Firth appeared in Richard Greenberger's Pulitzer Prize-nominated play Three Days of Rain, where he played Walker, a hopeless neurotic who is stymied by a stammer. Helping the King is Lionel Logue, played with supreme empathy by Geoffrey Rush, who himself won an Oscar for his performance in Shine, where he portrayed David Helfgott, a gifted pianist who experienced his own speech difficulties as a result of a mental breakdown brought on by his overbearing father. That's right. Is that, is that right? I think it's right. Because it might damage me. The doctor said it might damage me because it did long time, long time, once before. Long, 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 long time. Speech is not only about what we say, it is also about how we say it. Our choice of words and tone of voice tells us even more. Anyone undergoing treatment for a stammer will know that a recommended technique is to leap for an alternative word rather than stalling on trying to utter the first word that comes to mind. And in that way, the mind can then surmount the hurdle by swerving around it. What terrifies a stammerer is that gaping hole of silence, the enormous void into which they feel themselves falling when they are expected to be filling the silence with words. I have a shame. For Mrs. Majesty. While Seidler's superbly crafted script is allowed to verbalise Bertie's problem, it is never enough for a film to stop there. A director has to convey it in a way that the spoken word cannot. A director must render it in a way that only cinema can. In other words, a director must cinematize it. Hooper devised some simple yet effective visual motifs that complement Bertie's struggle. Firstly, Hooper and cinematographer Danny Cohen use wide-angle lenses to exaggerate the space around Bertie, emphasising the loneliness he feels. Then they frame Bertie's scenes with Lionel in an interesting manner. Ordinarily, no matter which side of the frame a character is placed, 
he or she looks towards the other side of the frame to suggest that they are looking at the other character who is in the reverse shot and who is positioned on the opposite side. So, if they are positioned on the right, they are looking into the left space, and vice versa. Crucially, by positioning the recipient in the other side of the frame, the space is filled. But what Hooper does is have Bertie sitting on one side, say the right, and instead of looking into the left space of the frame, he looks off camera right, which leaves the left side of the frame not only empty, but entirely superfluous. And then he does the same thing with Lionel. All of which accentuates the empty space, and I think that space presents the emptiness, or the void, into which Bertie so fears he is falling. So, when you talk to yourself, do you stammer? Yes. Of course not. Well, that proves that your impediment isn't a permanent part of you. What do you think was the cause? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't care. I, I stammer. It, no one can fix it. Another way Hooper gets us to understand Bertie's condition is when, during his first session, Lionel asks him to recite the third act soliloquy from Shakespeare's Hamlet. I'll bet you that you can read flawlessly right here, right now. In order to assist him, Lionel gets Bertie to put on a pair of headphones so that he will not hear his own voice. Bertie reluctantly agrees, and then Hooper gives us a wide shot of the room with the gramophone playing, Lionel holding up the microphone, and Bertie wearing the headphones and reads the soliloquy. Ordinarily, we could expect to hear Bertie's voice. After all, we are looking at him. But Hooper flips the grammar, so we hear what Bertie is hearing through the headphones. The overture to Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. This unique manipulation of sound puts us inside Bertie's head and helps us to identify with him all the more. A few weeks ago, I discussed The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, where director Julian Schnabel devised a host of visual techniques that put us inside the head of Jean-Dominique Bobby. Hooper does something similar here, only he does it with sound. And what is great about this technique is that Hooper is showing us one thing and we are hearing another. Side by side, the diving bell and the butterfly and the king's speech are great examples of how film grammar works and how, in the hands of great directors, the grammar can be broken to find new forms of expression. It reminds me of what George Lucas famously said, sound is half the picture. I was informed after the, the fact that my father's my father's last words were Bertie has more guts than the rest of his brothers put together. Couldn't say that to my face. Another effective decision was made by production designer Eve Stewart, who dressed Lionel's surgery. Lionel's business is hardly a thriving one, and his rooms are ramshackle and run down. During their sessions, Lionel has Bertie sit on a threadbare couch, behind which is a wall blotched with a collection of colours and textures. Hooper claims that they found the location in that condition, and if that is the case, it was quite serendipitous. What we see is wallpaper that is in the process of having several layers stripped away which is a little bit like the therapy Lionel is giving. 
These are what we call visual correlatives, similar to, but not the same as, T.S. Eliot's objective correlatives, a way of visualizing an idea or an emotion without having the character say it or express it physically. Parliament will not support the marriage. And there are other reasons for concern. He was careless with state papers, he lacked commitment and resolve, and there are those who are worried about where he will stand when war comes with Germany. We're not coming to that. Indeed we are, sir. A good number of Anglophiles and historians took issue with the film when it was released. But we need to get something straight here. History is a matter of interpretation. By its very nature, it is anachronistic. We are viewing events with the privilege of knowing what came after a certain event and what was happening elsewhere at the same time. So, historians promote or demote so-called facts in order to argue their thesis. I'm not saying that this gives filmmakers carte blanche to indiscriminately rewrite history. What I'm saying is that rather than throwing up our hands and crying, Hollywood has got it wrong yet again, we may try saying, or at least asking, something else. Ask why the filmmakers chose to make those changes. It is a more fruitful question because it gives more interesting answers. And the reasons they make those choices are very similar to the reasons why historians prioritise certain aspects in order to strengthen their case. Filmmakers do so to develop their theme, and Seidler shuffled all manner of historical facts in order to shape the story into a concise piece of drama. Which begs the question, what is Seidler's theme? Seidler's theme is friendship. You have two men, one a king, the other his subject. One is British, the other hails from Britain's colony, Australia. One speaks beautifully, the other stutters. And while that same man is stifled by protocol, the other man flagrantly disregards it. In fact, the word friend is uttered twice, both times by Bertie, once when he is in great pain and suffering, and the other occasion when he is elated, and both times he says it to Lionel. Telling as that is, what is more revealing is reading the shooting script. It is available online. There you will find that one of the film's subplots details Lionel's thwarted ambitions to be an actor. Traces of those ambitions can still be seen in the finished film, when he recites Shakespeare with his sons, and auditions for a play. Logue loved the bard, and especially reciting his soliloquies before theatre audiences. But despite his passion, he was unable to fulfil his ambitions to become a professional actor. Instead, he channeled his energies and gifts into helping people speak. Not Shakespeare's words, but their own words. So beneath the layer of friendship, you have two people healing each other's physical and emotional pain. In that respect, the King's Speech lightly resembles films as diverse as The Sixth Sense, where the young Cole Seer helps Dr. Malcolm Crowe just as much as the good Doctor helps him. And Goodwill Hunting, where Dr. Sean McGuire draws on the courage of his patient Will Hunting in order to heal the pain of having lost his wife to cancer. The King's Speech succeeds for many reasons, not least of which is its superb script and outstanding performances. But for me, 
The main reason is because it treats its subject in a uniquely cinematic manner.